0: For most of the questions I have in life, the answer is readily available. I can just find the right app on my phone, pull it up, do a quick Google search, and there I have it. What's the weather going to be like today? How many calories are in a cup of cooked rice? Sometimes I have to go a layer deeper and pick up the phone to solve it. How do I get permits to climb Mount St. Helens? When is registration going to open for kids' swim lessons? But what do you do when the internet or a quick phone call cannot answer your questions? What if the answer does not yet exist? If the answer doesn't exist, what would it take to find out? For example, what is the meaning of life? Does having a purpose help us to be more resilient in a down economy? Well, today, I'll be talking to someone who has made a career of asking difficult questions related to the topic of this show, and then figuring them out. <laughs> Jeff Bastion, and you're listening to Ignited With Meaning, where we'll be exploring the terrain of a meaningful life, creating a roadmap for that, and generating more happiness along the way. Today we'll be talking with Kendall Cotton-Bronk, Associate Professor of Psychology at Claremont Graduate University. Kendall directs the Adolescent Moral Development Lab, finding answers to questions like how youth develop purpose in their lives. This is part two of a two-part series on purpose development in our youth. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to do that, but it isn't a requirement in order to hear this one. Kendall is a firehose of research information and is basically able to answer every question I pose by citing a part of a research study that she directly participated in or led. She has great information about how youth with purpose and you are different than youth without purpose, and how we can help those youth cultivate more of it. So let's dive in and hear more from Kendall Cotton-Brock in this episode, Purpose Development in Our Youth, Part 2. Welcome, Kendall, and thanks for taking the time to be here today telling us your story and about the work you're doing.
1: Thanks for having me. So help,
0: help us get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us what you were doing before you got into research and in youth purpose development? And was there a moment when you remember becoming aware that you were going to go down the long academic path of becoming a Ph.D. and study purpose in youth?
1: <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I uh, became, I, gosh, it's been a while that I've been uh, working on this, so I have to kind of think back. Um, Actually, before I went into academia, I did work in business for a while. I worked in uh, management consulting, doing strategy work. And um, I was really involved in some big mergers and acquisitions and things like this. And um, it was kind of an interesting time to be involved in business. There were a lot of what I would call questionable business practices going on. Uh, Well, I'm sure that's not unique to that time, but particularly in the space around technology. And it seemed to me that there were some, uh, you know, clear no-nos, um, but the laws just hadn't caught up with things yet. And I was involved in in um, the strategic side of things. And so I would watch people sort of make decisions about whether or not they should do something that I think ethically and morally everybody would have believed, would agree was probably not right. But, you know, their justification was on, uh, often, well, it's not against the law, right? You know, there's no law that says I can't do it. So let's go for it. And so anyway, I just found myself being really, really interested in the way that individuals were making decisions about what was moral and what was not. And I realized that as a person working in business, that was not what I was supposed to be attending to. Um, And I, you know, I started writing, reading books about moral development and moral decision making. And I just really got interested in the topic. And so um, ultimately, I decided I probably business was not the place for me. And and probably um, I I really was pretty passionate about studying um, moral development and um, moral decision making. So I applied to grad school. I was um, accepted to do some work at Stanford. And um, I was really excited to work with Bill Damon, who's one of the world's leaders in uh, moral development. So I'd read pretty much all of his books (laughs) before I even um, started at school. So I I, uh, I guess I got lucky in that way.
0: Okay, and so when you say moral development, is there a particular age range that that applies to?
1: Uh, moral development is is definitely a lifespan um, issue. Trying to figure out how you know what you believe in and and how to make decisions about what is right and what is wrong. You know, it starts very early with um, children. We see evidence of. Empathy developing early, and and um, other moral emotions, shame and guilt, and but it goes up, you know, through the entire lifespan. Um, you know, later in life, people are making decisions all the time about how they might want to leave a positive legacy and things like that. Um, at Stanford, um, we were really interested in tackling these questions across the lifespan to a large degree, but particularly during the period of adolescence. And I think that's a particularly interesting time to look at moral development because. Young people in adolescence are sort of the the hallmark of adolescence is identity development, you know, figuring out who you are and what you believe in and what you care about. And so issues of morality become really salient in a way that um, they aren't necessarily earlier in life. And for many people anyway, they, they aren't so salient later in life. It's the time that you really start to think, okay, this is what my parents taught me, but do I really believe this? Or this is what I learned at church, but do I really buy into that? And you really sort of question all of those moral values and beliefs. So, um, so while moral development is definitely a lifelong um, pursuit, it's um, it's kind of a particularly adolescence is sort of a particularly interesting time to explore issues of moral development. And um, and so that's that's where where we jumped into the conversation, where I did anyway.
0: Yeah, I was uh, reading something that you wrote, and it said something to the effect of, while all Adolescents go through this this idea or stage of identity development. Only about twenty percent of high school students uh, also go through a stage of purpose development. Can you talk about how identity development and purpose are related, and um, what is it that the students uh, are getting when they get purpose development, and or conversely, what they're missing if they don't?
1: Yeah, and and maybe I should even back up a little to talk about how I see purpose as a potential facet of moral development, um, because that might not be obvious. Um, But I do think about, when we think about, you know, what is a purpose in life, I think that everybody has sort of a conception of what that means. But when we're going to try to study something um, in a scientific and really rigorous way, we need to have a really clearly defined definition of what it is. And not only that, it has to be a definition that we can operationalize. And what that means is we can sort of break it down and measure it. And we can all agree when the components of it are present or not present. Um, without that kind of definition, we can't study it in a scientific way. And so that was, you know, as we started to think about um, purpose, that was the first thing we had to do was come up with a definition. And the definition that we use in a scientific space actually I think aligns quite well quite closely with the way that we would think about it in sort of our everyday lives. But a purpose has sort of three components. The first is that a purpose in life is a goal of sorts. It's something that an individual wants to achieve, that they're working toward, um, it's a long term sort of far horizon. Uh, we call it an intention. Sometimes it's bigger than a goal. And sometimes it's not something that can be completely realized or fully achieved. But it's something towards which you can at least make progress. So, you know, if you find purpose in um, ending homelessness, for example, that's, um, that might be something you can never fully achieve, but you can certainly make progress toward it. that's the first part there's sort of this goal orientation the second is that it's really personally meaningful so we all have lots of different kinds of goals and aims in our lives but some of them are more um, personally significant than others and a purpose in life is particularly um, important to the individual in fact it can be so central to who you are that it this is where it can sort of intersect with identity but it becomes a facet of who you are Um, So we have young people, we've conducted interviews with them, and they'll say, you know, who I am is a Christian, and what I want to achieve is living the life that, you know, God intends for me. And so their purpose and their identity are really fused, you know, who they are and what they want to accomplish is essentially one and the same. Um, But that's fairly rare. That's not the case for all young people with purpose. And, And so... Um, that's how sort of purpose and identity can overlap. And they do tend to sort of develop in tandem, which I think it it makes sense if you think about it. Um, um, You know, as you're figuring out who you want to become, you're likely to also focus on what you want to accomplish. And there's a lot of empirical research to suggest that identity and purpose do develop together. Um, But they are distinct concepts, and not everybody develops um, a purpose, although most people do settle on some form of identity. Um, the third component of the definition that I think is really important to keep in mind is that, and this is how we think about purpose as a moral issue, is it's not just, it's, it's a long-term sort of aim that you want to accomplish. It's a particularly personally meaningful aim, but it's also um, one that is inspired by a, a desire to make a difference in the broader world. And so this is where purpose can take on sort of that moral um, dimension. Um it's, it, you know, you you um, I know your podcast focuses on meaning, and we actually distinguish purpose from meaning just a little. It's, they're obviously very closely related constructs, but it, again, in a scientific sense, it's important to have a really distinct definition. And so uh, meaning is anything that is significant to you, but we think about purpose as those, those meaningful aims that um, take you outside yourself, that enable you to contribute to the broader world in some way. And um, so that's how purpose can be uh, can be moral in, in nature. So just to kind of link it back to where I started on that discussion of moral development.
0: Yeah, and that's that's fascinating. And so essentially, your your journey began with this interest in moral development, and it, it it ultimately led to this place where you're now studying youth and youth development, and the now that purpose as uh, and de- purpose development has this moral element. So help me uh, understand, what are the individual benefits to um, a, an adolescent who develops purpose?
1: Yeah, so there are an awful lot of um, benefits associated with leading a life of purpose. And um, I think uh, the individuals with purpose report being um, improved psychological well-being. So um, individuals with purpose tend to be uh, happier, more hopeful, um, more optimistic, um, and so, you know, a lot of positive sort of uh, psychological states associated with the presence of purpose. Um, There's also some really interesting research going on that's finding that um, purpose is associated with uh, physical health. So individuals with purpose... uh, report a reduction in, uh, you know, chronic pain and um, some forms of Alzheimer's and and mild cognitive impairment, um, even some forms of cancer. And there's some really interesting research going on at UCLA where they're looking at the molecular underpinnings of um, purpose, and they're finding, you know, they're looking at sort of the the profile um, on a molecular level, like what goes on in people with purpose um, in their in their you know, DNA, uh, which is really fascinating, but sort of helping us to understand why is it that individuals with purpose do so much better from a uh, um, physical health perspective? Uh, they sleep better, they live longer, you know so it's, it's good for your health. Um, and then when we think about youth in particular, there are also a variety of academic benefits associated with leading a life of purpose. So we find that young people with purpose uh, compared to young people without purpose, they, uh, they report being more resilient. So they're more able to sort of, you know, better able to uh, bounce back from the challenges that, that they uh, encounter. They're grittier. They're more likely to kind of stick to it. Um, and, and one of the reasons um, that we think they're able to do that is they also report that their schoolwork is more meaningful. And I think that makes sense if you think about it. Um, if you know what it is that you ultimately want to accomplish um, and you can start to see how your schoolwork is getting you toward that larger aim, um, that schoolwork's going to take on a level of meaning that it might not otherwise have. So a uh, real broad range of benefits associated, I think, with uh, with leading a life of purpose.
0: Yeah, so <clears throat> as a researcher, I'm sure you get this, this question a lot, but um, do, do those other factors lead to purpose or does purpose lead to those other things?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think that, uh, some of these are just, uh, correlational, not causal. So, uh, you know, some of these things just go together. Um, we, but I think that there's, uh, like I said, especially, uh, research on the, in the physical development is looking at actual changes in your, you know, biology as a result of living life of purpose. Um, so in that case, purpose is causing these good things to happen. There is some evidence there. Um, And I think that, um, so, so I think purpose does really provide a, um, by, by having this direction, this motivating direction that you're moving toward, it does seem to pull young people along in a, in a, um, in a positive and healthy way. And, um, and I do think it is responsible for some of these positive states, but it is true that some, a good chunk of this research is still correlational in nature. So we need to do a little more teasing it out to understand better, um, you know what, what comes first, or is there maybe a whole third thing going on that, that is responsible for both? Um, but I really do think, like I said, especially with some of the stuff going on in the, in the med- medical schools at UCLA and other places, um, that there is some evidence that purpose is actually causing some of um, these uh, good things to unfold.
0: So I'm kind of curious, you know, if only 20% of youth develop purpose in adolescence, um, you know, what do you, what do you imagine? You know, do you do you, I guess do you have a vision for what the potential is? Um, do you do we think that forty percent of high school youth could develop purpose? Do we think that sixty percent would? And what do you think that the societal impact would be of something like that?
1: I think that the development of purpose is, I mean, it is a developmental phenomenon. So the interesting thing is if you look at early adolescence, maybe one in 10 young people reports leading a life of purpose or or being able to articulate a purpose for their lives. Among high school kids, it's more like one in five. Among college age youth, it goes up to about one in three. And then across months of adulthood, it's actually about 40%. So it is a developmental thing, and, I, and, and it's, a, it's a developmental phenomenon that really follows the development largely of identity. Because if you look at rates of identity development, they would, they would um, be ticking up at just at the same time. And, and there's a lot of research to suggest they're, they're not just uh, going on at the same time, but they actually are involved, you know, commingling. But anyway, yeah, obviously there's a lot of opportunities for um, young people, even young, e- even individuals across the lifespan. I mean, across the lifespan, the presence of purpose is really more the exception than the rule. And although I definitely think there are benefits to figuring out your purpose early, I think it's also, uh, you know, it's okay if it takes some young, young people a little bit longer to f- figure it out. Um, I think it's just mostly important that that it's on the radar and that it's something they're working toward. Um, but definitely, there's a lot of room for you know, higher rates of purpose among young people. And actually, we've developed some interventions. We sort of wondered, like, okay, so we know purpose is good for young people, and we know that it's really pretty rare. Are there steps that we could take to intentionally cultivate a sense of purpose in the lives of young people? And um, what was really interesting is when we first started doing research on this topic, we were conducting interviews and surveys with young people across the country. And and first, we did surveys with thousands of kids across the country, and the surveys were sort of assessing um, the presence of purpose and a variety of other indicators. And then we just randomly selected a a subset of um, the students who were surveyed, and we had a, we did an interview with them, and they were randomly selected, so they were not a particularly purposeful group. But in the interviews, we um, spent about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, asking them questions about, you know, what do you want to accomplish in your life, and why, and, and you know, imagine things have gone just as well as they possibly could have. What, what would your life look like at, say, 40 years of age? You know, what would you be doing? Who would be important to you? And, um, and so we asked all these questions about trying to really um, understand more about purpose. And we were really kind of caught off guard because the young people loved the interviews. They, at the end of the interviews, they would say, wow, nobody's asked me this before. And, you know, I really enjoyed the chance to to talk about these things. I know you're tape recording it. Can you send me the tape or can you send me the transcript or, you know, the, somehow I want to uh, continue this conversation. And that kind of got us thinking. We wondered you know, I wonder if this interview alone is an intervention. And so one of the colleagues, one of my colleagues um, uh, who was working on the project with me at the time decided to look at it because we'd already decided to follow up with surveys again um, several months later. And we kind of had this, you know, natural experiment emerge where we had, you know, uh, surveys time one, we had interviews with some of the participants uh, time two and not with others. And then we had these surveys again at time three. Anyway, we looked at the data and lo and behold, the individuals who had participated in this one-time intervention, this one-time interview that was not intended to be an intervention, had significantly higher rates of purpose months later. And so that kind of gave us hope. Like, this is, you know, this is, this is possible. We can help young people find purpose. Um, Of course, we can't go around and interview all young people around the country. That would be a bit time consuming. So we tried to take our interview and translate it into a set of online tools that young people could engage with over the course of three days. And um, it's not all day. It's like, a you know, you go online for 15 to 20 minutes worth of activities. Um, They would watch videos and send emails and, you know, engage in sorting activities, things like this. Um, but it was really mimicking the, um, the interview. And we wondered if this online intervention might help foster purpose. And it did, which was really, really fun. So I think what this says to me is that, you know, probably all young people have a purpose. You know, probably 100% of young people are pretty darn close anyway. And it's really just that they aren't thinking about it and that we as adults aren't asking them to... Um, to verbalize or articulate what it is they really want out of life but given just a little bit of prodding they they can do it and they're eager to do it and um and so yeah so I think there's uh, every every reason to be hopeful about the potential to encourage um, far greater numbers of young people um, to discover to discover their purpose
0: so if we were to just imagine for a moment that the potential is 100% of youth would be able to develop and articulate their purpose um what do you think is the the main stumbling block now is it is it the quality of the interventions is it just the societal prioritization of it is it a big enough you know marketing budget to go out there with like uh and and sell youth on the idea that hey look you should you should get into purpose and here's where you start
1: that's a you know it's a, it's probably a little bit of all of the above right like i just don't think it, it is not a huge priority for um for us as a society i do think that there are increasing numbers of interventions out there and so more and more young people are being introduced to the idea and and um some of the interventions are better than others but um but i do think you know, I, th- I, I really do think that if we, you know, if we did that study again, we might. There's every reason to be hopeful that rates of purpose might have ticked up a little. I, I would, I would hope anyway, just because I do think there, there has been an increased sort of um, conversation about or awareness of purpose. But at the same time, to be realistic, it, it, maybe it's been too small. You know, we've got a long ways to go to really reach. This is a big, con- big country with a lot of young people, um, mm-hmm. and so it would take a, a big commitment to really. Um, encourage all young people or even most of the young people across the country to engage in these kinds of conversations or interventions or, or, um, interviews or whatever we could do to help foster purpose. And I just don't think that that's been a priority to be perfectly honest. Yeah.
0: All right. I want to back up a little bit. Um, you know, as a researcher, you do, um, a lot of research studies and, and I'm just wondering if you can, um, Walk us through what does a research study really look like um, from from head to toe? I mean, how do you how do you get the idea? How do you evaluate the idea? Um, you know, how do you fund the idea? And and then how do you go about actually executing it and then publishing something?
1: Um, I gotta say, it's a pretty I, I, it's a process I really enjoy. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't be a researcher if I didn't. But I know that sometimes people hear research and their eyes kind of glaze over and they picture you know, sitting for hours in the stacks in the library. And research for me is really sitting down and talking with young people about, you know, some of the most pressing issues in their lives, what they really care about, what they want to accomplish. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I'll tell you about one particular study that we did sort of recently that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, we I was really interested in trying to understand what purpose might look like in a broader sense, you know, in um, in relation to you know global economic ups and downs and things like that, and in other parts of the world, and so I applied for a Fulbright, um, a Fulbright. Uh, so, so Senator Fulbright um, back in the nineteen fifties um, started this uh, the Fulbright Foundation, and and um, the idea is that they send uh, scholars around the to other countries in the world, in part to um, you know to conduct research. But also, there was a little bit of an ulterior motive. It's a little bit of being an ambassador for your country. And he sort of felt like if we had more um, exchanges, this was post-World War II, if we had more international exchanges, maybe there'd be fewer uh, wars. You know, if we really sort of could understand one another better, that was sort of um, Senator Fulbright's um, vision, anyway, for the whole Fulbright uh, award. But anyway, um, which I thought was kind of cool, right? Kind of a neat thing to be a part of. Yeah, I never and, knew that history. Um, Yeah, I know. To me, that's really neat, and and I think it's important for people to know because whenever budgets come up, there's always a bit of a temptation to cut money to this, um, to 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 those kinds of programs. And I'm so glad that uh, that they are still supported because they're relatively inexpensive, and um, and I do think they facilitate a lot of uh, you know uh, cross cultural you know understanding. Fulbright uh, scholars come to the U.S. and anyway, Um, so I applied for Fulbright to go to Greece. And um, I really wanted to go to Greece because, um, in you know, we had that Great Recession. And the Great Recession really ended in the U.S. as early as maybe 2009. Um, But the economic effects were really still um, really, you know, in in the throes of it. (laughs) You know, Greece was really still in the throes of this economic downturn. And I was sort of curious about, you know, how might... Um, young people growing up amidst this uh, really severe economic downturn. How might having a um, well, how might the economic downturn influence their views of the future and their sense of purpose in life? And so, um, I was fortunate to go study in, in uh, Greece. And the way that the Fulbright works, they um, connected me with a scholar at one of the universities in Greece. And so, she became my collaborator. So she was Greek, and um, and we just we really had a lot of fun conducting the study. We we um, did some surveys and we created a survey and we created uh, an interview and the survey asked, um, young people, these were college age students. We wanted juniors and seniors who were sort of on the brink of entering the uh, working world. And we got uh, students from across a variety of academic majors, things, you know, they were majoring in everything from education to business and, um, kind of everything in between. And, um, the survey asked them questions about, um, about their purpose, so that we could identify individuals who we who you know were high on purpose, and individuals who did not seem to have a, a purpose in life. But they also asked questions about you know where do you think the country is heading? How well do you understand what's going on with the economic uh, crisis? How do you think you know to what extent do you think this economic crisis is going to influence your your uh, life in the future? And how you know optimistic do you feel? And um, we had scales about resilience. You know how. Um, How well do you feel that you can sort of bounce back from the curveballs that life throws you? And um, so anyway, so there was a big uh, survey component. But um, we used the responses on the purpose survey to identify young people who were high in purpose and those who were low in purpose. And we sort of looked at the different ways that they responded to um, survey items. And we also used that to identify individuals that we wanted to interview. And so we used something that we call an, uh, an extreme groups design, where we picked individuals who were really high in purpose, individuals who were really low in purpose, to interview, so we could look for some differences. And basically, what we learned is that um, it just as I mean, we really could not have like cooked up better data if we had tried. Like the, the this is just <laughs> the way it came out, but it was so true that individuals with purpose were so much more optimistic about the future. And they weren't Pollyanna about it. They were totally aware of what was going on. And in fact, they were actually more likely than the individuals without purpose to say, these challenging economic times are going to affect my future. They got that. They were aware of it. They were were not ignoring it. But at the same time, they would say things like, you know, but despite that, despite the challenging economic circumstances, I'm going to be okay. And and so it was really interesting. It wasn't just a... um, you know, they were just blissfully unaware, or something. They were they were quite aware of what was going on, but they um, they were still optimistic, and they they were very resilient and able to look past these economic challenges and still envision a positive future, um, even though they were they were very well aware of the challenges they were going to encounter. And so, in the interviews, we were looking for sort of some of the strategies that the young people used to remain hopeful about the future, and they, they talked about really being very committed to family and friends and and even to their communities and country. I mean, it was um, just uh, so interesting. They would say, you know, um, that the individuals without purpose would say, I got to get out of this country, and I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this place, and I'm never going to find a job, and I've got to leave, and, and there was a big brain drain going on in Greece. Um, this was in 2016, although I think it still continues today. Um, where people are leaving the country and going to other parts of Europe to find employment, and the kids with purpose, where they would say things like, "Boy, I hope I don't have to leave. This country has been so good to me, and it's my time to kind of you know step up and do my part. I want to help my friends, help my family. I'm going to you know work with my community and really see what I can do to um, to help improve the state of a, the state of affairs. Um, the individuals with out purpose, they were almost like in survival mode. They'd say, "You know, when I think about the prospect of getting a job, I realize I just have to get something. I mean, I, I've got to eat." There was one person who even said, "You know, like I used to be someone who was worried about others, but you know, in this time, you just got to take care of yourself, and 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 that's all I can do right now." And the individuals with purpose didn't say that. Individuals with purpose said things like, "I still want to pursue a meaningful job. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm not going to give up on that." And um, I still feel, you know, they, they still talked about a really deep commitment to, to others, um, to friends, family, community members. And so it was a really interesting, um, uh, study and, and, um, it actually turned out the data turned out, to, you know, just as we had predicted, um, almost even better than we had predicted. And, um, so we, we wrote up our findings and we submitted them to a journal. These got published in the journal of, uh, positive psychology and, um, yeah, and and so it was a really fun study to conduct.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, that that does make uh, doing a research study sound really appealing. You get to travel to Greece. You get to talk to interesting people. You get to you know learn uh, interesting things that you never would have found out otherwise. So yeah, I could dig that research thing. That's exactly right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and uh, and we had uh, Greek um, graduate students who assisted us quite a bit because I don't speak Greek, and uh, most Greeks do speak some English. But if we're going to ask somebody about something as uh, you know as personal as their purpose in life, it's uh, preferable to do it in their native language. So really, really grateful to have Greek collaborators who could um, help me out on that front.
0: So I'm curious, you know, so you chose to to pick and research a place that is facing uh, economic adversity. Um, is is that is there any correlation between um, people who are facing adversity and purpose development?
1: That's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, we were we were interested in that question as well. Initially, actually, um, the feedback I was getting from people I would go talk about purpose and you know conferences and things, and people would say, "Well, this is all fine and good for uh, you know middle class kids who are all college bound, but does a young person who's really uh, not able to attend college and, and maybe?" Um, you know, dealing with food insecurity and things like that, are they really going to be worried about purpose? You know, probably not. Certainly Maslow's hierarchy of needs would suggest, um, no, those kinds of self-actualizing or even self-transcendent aims are not likely to be on a young person's radar if they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And um, so, yeah, we conducted a study actually here in um, Los Angeles, where I live, and we looked at two communities that were only 14 miles apart. Um, They were both uh, comprised primarily of ethnic minority um, individuals, although slightly different ethnic minority makeups. But the difference was the one community was um, a very middle income community and the other community was definitely a low income community. And one of the indicators that we use for that is um, young people's eligibility for a free and reduced lunch program. So um, individuals who are eligible for a free and reduced lunch program have uh, you know, very, very low income. They're generally two and a half times the poverty line, which is a very low income. And we actually found that the roots of purpose were, um, were not statistically different. Um, they were they were really quite similar. So young people from the low income community were just as likely as young people from the middle income community to um, identify and articulate a, a purpose in their lives. And um, we also looked at some of the so I talked about some of the health benefits associated with leading a life of purpose. But most of that research has been conducted with more middle income samples. So we wanted to see if some of those health benefits were um were the same for young people from low income communities. And again, we found that um, by and large, they were Um, young people um, from low income communities were, you know, with purpose, were still more likely to be hopeful and and happy and um, psychologically uh, healthy. And and even we didn't get to do all of the physical uh, indicators of health, but they, you know, but many of those held up as well. But then we did interviews. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I was just going to ask. So are there any ways in which uh, different economic backgrounds or different cultural backgrounds uh, do influence purpose development?
1: Well, absolutely they do. Yes. And and even in this, in this one particular study, we were glad that we added the interview component because we talked about how they developed and remained committed to their purpose and what kinds of things were inspiring them um, to lead lives of purpose. And here, the two um, populations were quite different, um, or the two samples, I should say, that young people from the uh, low-income community talked a lot about the challenges that they encountered in their lives and how, um, for some of these young people anyway, for the young people who are able to, to find, um,
0: you know, meaning in
1: these challenges and look towards, uh, you know, improving things in the future, these challenges actually became really inspiring sources of, of purpose. So we had one young person who talked about being, um, you know, uh, the, the target of racism and how this really, you know, had bothered him and, and um, upset him. And, and he wanted to grow up and become a lawyer and really work on, um, you know, social justice issues around race. And, you know, another young person who just wanted to become a cop. And he said, you know, we've had a lot of issues where I don't, I don't feel safe and my family doesn't feel safe. And I want to be a cop. I want to, I want to keep people safe. Um, and that was really different because the young people from more of the middle income background when they talked about the kinds of things that inspired them to lead lives of purpose, they focused on, um, not on challenges they had encountered, but instead on like this, you know, kind of visions of an ideal world, you know? So, um, some of them said, I want to be a journalist. I love relaying, you know, news and information to people. And, um, you know, in an ideal world, uh, we'd all have access to the information we need. And, um, you know, so, so totally different sources of um, inspiring purpose. And, and when you look, this, this, this was obviously within one culture. This study was all done within um, Los Angeles. But most definitely, if you look at the presence of purpose in, uh, among young people in different cultures around the world, um, the nature of purpose varies uh, quite widely.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask to see if you have any examples of how that varies in other countries.
1: Yeah, there's some, um, so some colleagues of mine, um, Shana Moran and Jenny Menon and Mariano did a really interesting cross-cultural study where they looked at purpose and they had the collaborators from all of these different countries. So they were sort of leading the charge, but they had many collaborators. Uh, they looked at purpose, I believe in Brazil and South Korea, um, in parts of Europe, um, forgetting all of the countries, but they, yeah, they were really trying to understand what does purpose mean in these different, I think they're in China too, in these different cultures. And just as you would expect, it, it does mean something slightly different in every culture. I think what was sort of interesting is that there was some, even, even though each of them did define it and understand it and conceive of it differently, um, they all had some conception of purpose, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but yes there and uh, since that's not my research i'm not quite as well versed in all of the findings there but um but i did think that was sort of an interesting one that yes they definitely conceive of it differently and yet in all cultures there was some um some conception of purpose
0: okay right so it's not as if every culture has the same shared definition of purpose that they're working towards and so that probably you know not only that that influences what purpose development looks like
1: exactly exactly mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah i think in some cultures it's more um you know it's, it's much more intentional and focused on than, you know i mean in more traditional cultures had um, roles often assigned to sort of young people and their, their purpose was sort of handed to them they might even have you know, rites of passage and things like that and in our culture we just don't have that we have so many options we have young people who who feel a little overwhelmed by the, the variety of purposes available to them and not quite sure which which ones to pursue. And so that experience really varies by culture.
0: Right. Okay. Well, You know, you wrote a really interesting article that I read about uh, purpose development. I think it was uh, a grounded theory of the development of noble youth purpose. Um, and in that, you talked about these different uh, stages of commitment as sort of, uh, um, I don't know, signposts towards the development of purpose, starting with uh, initiating commitment and kind of moving through sustaining commitments and escalating commitment and so on. Um, Can you talk a little bit about those stages of commitment and, and I don't know, maybe highlight even one of the stories of the youth that you interviewed for that?
1: Sure. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun study too. We, um, we've followed a, uh, a group of young people who had demonstrated really sort of intense Um, commitments to various purposes in life. So we weren't just interested in seeing really what was typical or common, and I certainly wouldn't say that the young people in this study were were typical, but what was possible, you know, what was sort of possible with regards to purpose development. So we wanted to look at young people who had um, sort of extraordinary commitments to various purposes in life. And We followed them for about five for five years, and uh, through the course of adolescence and um, young adulthood. And I think that was a really interesting time to follow them because, of course, that's you know they're kind of in the throes of purpose development. They're figuring out who they are, and they're figuring out what it is they want to accomplish. And um, and so we wondered if you know does purpose stay the same? Does it change? Does it disappear? Does it you know? And and so that's kind of what we were looking at. study and what we found by and large is that it it, there it does it does make it you know it does endure at least among these young people it did i we can't say that it does for everybody but it is possible for purpose to endure um and that it evolves a little bit and so um yeah i'll give you an example there was uh, uh two two brothers they were twins and they were actually from los angeles um and they had grown up and um, been exposed to um, a lot of gun violence. So when they were young, there was the Ennis Cosby shooting. There was a bank shootout. There were a variety of different shootings. There were some school shootings that were. And um, this really bothered them. And, and not surprisingly, they, they felt very unsafe. And so um, when they were in high school, they got really involved in trying to understand more about um, what is uh, sort of the prevalence of gun violence and what, what maybe they could do to try to help curb it. And so they did, you know, tons of research, understanding all the stats and all of this. And um, one of the things they were sort of surprised to learn was that um, it was legal to sell guns and ammunition in Los Angeles County. And the justification was that people could use them for hunting. So anybody who knows anything about LA County knows there's not a lot of hunting <laughs> in LA County. Um, nope. And so this seemed, yeah, this seemed like maybe an opportunity for them to intervene. And they decided, they worked with their local legislators and and, um, their stories about uh, the challenges of this were really, um, I don't mean to gloss over it, they were really um, kind of inspiring the the lengths to which they had to go to 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 do this. But ultimately, they they could not, um, you know, change the laws around guns, but they could change the laws around ammunition sales. And so they did push a law forward or help push a law forward that um, made it illegal Um, for gun, for ammunition to be sold in Los Angeles County. Now, I'm not sure if that is still the law today, but that's, um, that's, at that point, they had passed that law, and, or not they personally, but they were working with uh, legislators, and they helped push that law, and um, so that was when they were in high school, and this was really, um, you know, sort of, it was their whole center, you know, like that's what they were, that's what they were focused on and, and was understanding this issue and trying to make a difference. Um, when they went to college, they said, uh, they, you know, we, we interviewed them again and they said, yeah, we're, well, we're still interested in the issue, but it was interesting. They had kind of veered off into slightly different directions. One of the twins was really interested in um, nuclear um, disarmament and he said, really, they're just bigger guns. Right. You know, it's the same issue. It's just on a global scale. And now that he was in college, he had access to research labs that were, you know, educating him about these issues. And he realized, like, yeah, I see for him, there was a a very logical continuation or or extension of his initial interest into this uh, nuclear um, disarmament. And the other twin, (laughs) the other brother, got really interested in journalism. And he said, you know, I realize I'm very committed to this issue of gun control, but I also really love the idea of being able to bring this information to people. You know, he said, I spent so long setting up on all these statistics and I really understood the issues inside and out. And I love being able to share that with family and friends and people in the community. And so he, he uh, wanted to become a journalist to, um, to go on and, um, uh, you know, continue sharing information around things like gun control, but other issues as well.
0: And then we interviewed them again when
1: they were out of college and, um, and first working. And one had an internship, the, the one who was interested in nuclear disarmament in Washington, D.C., working for a Senate um, on uh, one of those uh, committees for which this issue was relevant. I can't remember exactly what the committee was. And the other one was working as a journalist. So it was really um, fun to sort of trace their story and to see how their their commitment to this issue, I would say it evolved. I didn't. I wouldn't say it. Um, it, it didn't just stay the same but it certainly didn't veer off into a a totally different direction it was more of um sort of an evolution
0: yeah so first of all i i am just amazed and impressed when high school students are able to do something like stop the sale of ammunition in uh, los angeles county that is truly right that's huge Uh that's
1: huge (laughs) and to be perfectly honest i i don't know if that is still the law i'd have to go back and double check but yes they did uh they did uh, work very closely with a uh, uh, legislator who did a, a, a did pass that.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and so, you know, kind of going back to this idea of the different stages, the initiating commitment, sustaining commitment, um, escalating and evolving. You know, I think that that story does a good job of, of tracing it, that they... Kind of were initiated into the commitments via the story, you know, the shootings around them, like their their environment, really influenced that. Yep. Um, and then sustaining commitments, they were able to keep at it, you know, through all these, you know, uh, I can't even imagine all the trials to get the, that legislation passed. Yeah. Um, and then you know, throughout college and beyond, that evolved into different things like journalism and um, and to nuclear arms proliferation. Um, work to try to reduce that so yeah I guess when we when we look at those different stages with the initiating commitment are there are there different types of interventions that you know help like I think that you mentioned something about just even exposing kids to different types of opportunities to um, take action in their community helps with that can you talk a little bit about like what initiating commitment looks like and what the interventions are
1: yeah. So, I, well, it, it would be great if we were far enough along that we had interventions that targeted each of the sort of stages in, in purpose development. But the truth is we don't. But I do think that um, that, yes, you're right. It's really getting out there and trying different things. Um, you know, I have young people in their 20s and, uh, that I'll hear about who are, you know, drifting a little bit and really having a tough time sort of deciding in which direction they want to go. And I always say, you know, well, well, don't sit at home. It's not going to just come out of nowhere and uh, strike you over the head that this is your purpose. Then suddenly you know which way to go. Um, our experience with uh, the young people with whom I've worked anyway is that they're out there and they're doing things and they're trying things. And sometimes they're doing things that that they never expected to really care about. But they come to find that, wait a minute, I, I do care about this. There was a young woman in this, uh, example who was really, um, just trying to find a project for her, uh, um, 4-H program. And her dad was pouring motor oil out in the backyard and they, they lived in Texas on a big farm. And she started being wondering about the, um, you know, the health impacts of that because her family lived on well water. And so they looked into that and she turned this into a, a 4-H program where she's, started a, a oil motor oil recycling program in rural Texas and it ended up really taking off and she she at, you know before this i don't think she'd really had given environmental issues much thought at all but as this project ended her way she started to realize like hey as it turns out i'm pretty good at working with people at trying to get you know to get this accomplished and 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 actually i really care about this this is important to me and i think if she hadn't gotten involved in that project in the first place she might not have known that so I think, yes, you have to get out there and you have to try some different things. And in addition to trying different things, I also think you have to be a little bit reflective. on What do I like about this? And how do I feel about it? And, and does, does this matter to me? Because sometimes we get a little caught up in the day-to-day and we don't step back and really think about, um, is this a good fit for my uh, for my skills and, and does it enable me to do something that, um, that I find meaningful? So I think it's, you know, be active, but also be a little bit reflective on what you're doing and and, and really make a conscious um, effort to think about how does this feel to me? And am I connecting with the larger goal or mission of this activity? And, and is this something I care about? Um,
0: it almost sounds to me like, uh, like, like, um, uh, reflective trial and error, like, like try it. Does it, does it feel good? Does it use my strengths and skills? Um, does it seem meaningful? Um, if not, uh, you know, try something else, but maybe make a more intentional move towards something that's not the more of the same. It's, it's different so that you can test out whether or not it's a better fit.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And I think you said it much more eloquently than I did.
0: Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, you also, just kind of going back to this idea of meaning, you mentioned, you know, that there, there's this difference between meaning and purpose and that you have this definition of purpose. But here is this place where you use the word meaning, um, where yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like the um, the activity needs to be personally meaningful to the individual um, in order for purpose to occur. Is that, is that right? And can you help us just clarify how the word meaning uh, fits in here?
1: Yeah. So I think of meaning as a component of purpose. Um, it, it's, uh, so when we talk about the definition, it's, you know, there's that goal orientation component, there's this desire, you know, it's inspired by a desire to make a difference in the broader world, but it's also very personally meaningful. And so, um, yeah, meaning and purpose are. Although I do think of them as distinct concepts, especially when we're trying to conduct research on them, um, they are certainly related. And um, personal meaningfulness is a really uh, key component of purpose.
0: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is is kind of just this idea that um, you can start down the road of something, and uh, you know, not, it, it initially is not purposeful because it's not meaningful. But then you uncover this element of it that it is meaningful and then therefore it makes the work that you're doing and the active engagement, um, actually, uh, more purpose purposeful.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Some colleagues of mine, um, Pat Hill um, conducted a study where they were looking at sort of the different pathways to purpose and they found three pathways. And one is, you know, there is some group of young people who, you know, like the young person that I talked about with the gun violence, who, you know, something happens, there's an issue, and they decide, I have got to get engaged around this issue. And that's sort of the, the proactive approach. But that's relatively rare. Um, I think the more common approach is almost like a reactive. You know, I'm involved in something, and now that I reflect on it, I realize, hey, I'm kind of good at this, and I it's really meaningful to me. Um, so that was sort of the second and, and more common pathway to purpose. And then they actually identified a third pathway, too. Maybe this one's the, the, the least common, but um, that is uh, young people who look at somebody else and say, boy, I see what that person's doing. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I want to get involved in that, too. So they're particularly inspired by somebody else's purpose and um, to make it their own.
0: That's really interesting. And it, you know, as a, a parent, it makes me just sort of reflect on you know if, if i'm trying to help my kids cultivate purpose in their life what are the, what are the different approaches and it's unlikely that they're going to just look at me and say hey i'm going to follow that guy it's more likely that if i expose them to different things um, that they ultimately might find something that that helps them or uncover their purpose yeah. is that right
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. I think I would, um, you know, encourage young people to get involved in a variety of activities. Think seriously about what they like and don't like. Pay attention to, um, you know, the, the goals they have in their lives and the things they want to accomplish, and think about how they can get involved in that. And then also, yeah, tune into what's going on in, in the lives of people around you. Are there other people doing things that um, that look meaningful that that you want to check out as well?
0: Yeah. Going back to your your study, you have this idea of uh, sustaining commitment. And in this example of, of trying to um, have new ammunition laws in Los Angeles County, I imagine there were so many points where they could have just given up or felt defeated. How do people sustain commitments? And what have you found about that?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's, it's really interesting. I, I think there's, to be perfectly honest, there was a lot more we need to look into there. How do they stay committed and not give up? Um, I, I, a lot of them talk about and in, in research with other um, samples like just that people just can't stop, right? It's just so core to who they are that they sometimes feel like they just can't stop. This is what they need to be doing. Um, and yes, it is, um, it is, you know, setbacks are frustrating, but they're not the end of the world. They just, I think that one of the things we see is that they they sort of um, frame setbacks a little bit differently rather than framing them as a, this is it, this is the end. It's, uh, this is just merely a setback and I just have to find another another way to move forward. But I, to be honest, we don't know uh, a whole lot. Uh, there's there's a whole lot more looking into um, that issue that we need to do. Um, we know that this resilience really does seem to go along with purpose, but we don't know um, a lot about how, uh, you know, there's a lot, Space for more research there, for sure.
0: Yeah. Does passion have anything to do with it?
1: Well, I think it does, but the the real meaning of the word passion is it's something that you're willing to suffer for. And so I think, you know, it's a pretty intense word when you think about it, and we kind of throw the word passion around all the time. And um, so I, we, we intentionally did not include the word passion in the definition, only because, like I said, I feel like it's, um, it's kind of thrown around too... Um, Lightly, and it's a pretty intense, intense word. But I do think there's that element of at least deep personal meaningfulness and purpose, um, and that many people would associate that with passion uh, as well.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you give me that definition of you know something that somebody's willing to suffer for. You know, when I when I take a step back and I think about all the different ways we can think about you know purpose, I think ultimately people find it to be fulfilling and to bring happiness. So this idea that Right. There might be a link between that and this willingness to suffer and that the willingness to suffer might actually ultimately lead us to more happiness. I think uh throws a lot of people's concept of happiness on their on its head. Um do you do you ever yeah. do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I do. Yeah, you know, I think that overall purpose is associated with you know, psychological psychological well-being and, and positive states and things, but I actually think that purpose is not all um It's not always, it certainly is not always easy. And um, there's some really interesting studies, even though overall purpose is generally associated with, um, you know, positive affect and things like that. There are some interesting exceptions. So um, research with parenting actually finds that parents tend to report higher levels of, and this study might be looking more at meaning than um, purpose, but at least this is about as close as we can get. They report higher levels of meaning, but lower levels of happiness than non-parents. And we see something similar with caregivers, where they tend to report higher levels of meaning but lower levels of happiness than non-caregivers. And so I think there's something um, interesting going on there. Not all forms of purpose are fun. Um, there's a lot, and, and maybe even in other kinds of purposeful activities, there are aspects of it that aren't fun. That, you know, I, I know in, in hearing the, the story of these boys who were working with, uh, um, to get this, you know, ammunition sales um thing changed. Uh, that a lot of it was not fun. It was very disappointing, very frustrating, very difficult. And so I think that there's a deeper sense of contentment that accompanies um, a life filled with purpose. But I don't think that a life of purpose is always fun. I think um, it could probably be very stressful, very disappointing. In some ways, there's it's even more stressful than not having a purpose. If you don't have a purpose and things don't go well, what do you care, right? You don't have anything invested. But if you're really working towards something and that thing that you really care about is being held up or held back, it's very stressful and it's very um, difficult to deal with. So I do think it's important to keep in mind that overall, I do believe that purpose is associated with a deeper sense of contentment and well-being. But it's it's not always in the moment going to be associated with happiness and certainly um, particular forms of it um, uh, might not often be associated with um, happiness
0: yeah. And yet, uh, despite all of that, you still have studies that report that there's more positive health outcomes, even if people might be, uh, experiencing higher levels of stress.
1: That's right. And that's where I think it's, it's a deeper sense of contentment. It's not just a, a momentary, um, thrill. <laughs> Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's a, it really is this sort of deeper sense of ongoing, like, look, this is hard and it's not always fun but I know what I'm doing and I know that I'm doing the right thing. And that deep sense of contentment, um, I think underscores some of the the health benefits associated with purpose.
0: Yeah. I I think that's just interesting that the contentment might have like a stronger correlation or causality than stress with respect to health outcomes. Um, because I think that's a good point. Yeah. Stress seems like it's, it's all the rage you want to minimize your stress and whatnot. And, and yet it's, Possible that forcing yourself into those situations, if it results in greater contentment, can ultimately be more of a positive health benefit. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And it, it might have to do with the time horizon. You know, in the short term, there might be a lot of, you know, there can be some over some stressful experiences along the way, but in the long run, there might be a deeper sense of contentment that emerges.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious to move on to what's, what's next for you. I mean, you've, you've spent the last, you know, decade plus researching, uh, purpose, <laughs> and yet when I, you know, looked at you, you have, you know, uh, at least a half dozen more studies that you're working on and you're affiliated <laughs> with you know, what is left to be answered here? Like, what are the burning questions you have in your mind? And how do you think that that helps individuals or us as a society move forward?
1: Well, yeah, I definitely think there's there's lots more research to do, and um, and I'm excited to be a, a part of, of of some of it anyway. Um, One of the things we're interested in looking at is more of a collective sense of purpose, particularly among groups like families. And so we're looking at um, um, conducting a study. We just had a small planning grant that wraps up next week, and we're hoping to start a larger study on on family purpose. Um, I'm also more interested in continuing to look at the role of purpose among individuals from um, challenging economic backgrounds. So, you know, I did this study in Los Angeles, and we conducted that study in Greece, We've actually done a little bit of research in Liberia. Looking, Liberia is like the based on the GDP anyway, the fourth poorest country in the world. And young people there, um, following the Ebola outbreak and a series of civil wars, are are um, many of them are uh, orphans and you know living on the streets. And um, and so I'm really curious about what you know. What even just positive youth development might look like for these young people and is it possible for these young people who are in truly, truly um, um, trying circumstances, you know, severe economic deprivation, not just um, you know, eligible for free and reduced lunch, but, but really not knowing where their next meal is coming from, um, you know, to develop a sense of purpose and, and what, what would positive youth development look like in that culture? we certainly we really don't know you know most of the research i think um uh, surprising amount of the research that we conduct takes place in the us and western europe and that's really in primarily you know affluent or um circumstances and so interested in sort of looking at positive youth development in general and purpose more specifically in um, um in this liberian culture um, we're also interested in looking at purpose among adolescent and young adult cancer survivors. So there's some research to suggest that as you know, you look forward and the time horizon is shorter, that issues of purpose sort of naturally emerge. Um, and so that older adults who are um, you know, getting, getting quite up there in terms of age are more likely to start to reflect on issues of purpose and meaning just because um, they're realizing that their time is limited. Um, and there's some research to suggest that when you get a cancer diagnosis, regardless of of um, what kind of cancer it is, many people do start to sort of confront their own mortality. So we wondered what might this look like for adolescents with um, cancer diagnoses. Would is there any chance that maybe there is a bit of a silver lining, and they're likely to confront their or to consider issues of purpose? And is there are there steps that we could take to help them think about um, their purpose more intentionally? And um, and maybe you know. I, the science, the uh, medical science is, is really so improved, is, is much improved, and adolescents who are diagnosed with cancer are much more likely to to survive. And so, um, you know, is there a chance that we could maybe find a silver lining here? You've got this t- cancer diagnosis, but maybe this is also an opportunity to reflect on your larger purpose, because in the end, this is going to be a challenge, but there's every reason to believe you will survive. Um, so anyway, yeah, so those are some of the more immediate projects we're interested in tackling. Um, but yeah there's there's lots left to look at
0: <laughs> yes i like well uh, i want to read the results of each one of those studies that's uh, those are all really compelling and uh, i commend you for taking on this challenge of looking at all of these people that are uh, especially in liberia growing up in such challenging circumstances if there is a way to help them and have more positive psychology in their development um and find out from them what's working. I think that's just, that sounds really amazing.
1: Well, thank you. I will, I'll keep you posted. <laughs>
0: okay, great. Um, well, to wrap, do you have any final advice uh, for parents, educators, and mentors who work with youth or you know, where to find more information about what you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I would say there are some, you know, I think that um, if, if you have a young person in your life who you feel like is really struggling to identify their purpose, it's, um, there's every reason to believe you, you, you as an adult, um, whether you're a parent or an employer or a friend or a neighbor or whatever, you know, can be helpful. Um, in our experience, young people really do enjoy having these conversations. And so engaging young people in these conversations, making sure to be a good listener, you know, you can't always anticipate which direction the conversations are going to go in. And I think that it's important that adults really let the adolescents sort of take the lead and see where they want to go. But, um, we have some toolkits and other things available on our website, um, which you can find. My the website is kendallcottonbronk.com, and and some of the um, resources are available there. Lots of journal articles and and um, also some you know blog entries and things like that that are a little more um, easily digested. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So yeah, if, you, if we can help with the uh, additional resources, um, you know we've got we've got a number of things on the website there.
0: Okay, and so some of those are. You know, online surveys that we could provide to our children, or if you're a teacher, you could provide to your classroom.
1: That's right. That's right. And all of our resources are are free.
0: Okay. Wow. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kendall.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Kendall. I do encourage you to have those conversations with kids in your life whether that is your own kids or those you teach or mentor. Again, if you want to learn more about Kendall's studies or access those resources like online surveys, check her out at kendallcottonbronk.com. I'll also add a link to her website on my website, Ignited With Meaning. That concludes our two-part series on purpose development in our youth. I'm sure we'll continue to revisit this topic from time to time, but for now, I hope you have some simple actionable next steps that you can incorporate into your relationship with the youth in your lives. I'm still mulling over exactly what I'll do, but I have ideas like monthly or even quarterly volunteering to expose our kids to different ways that they can make a difference. The kids are still pretty young, so even just focusing on kindness and empathy feels really valuable to help them consider the impact that they make on others every day. Uh, in our next episode, we'll be talking with Lara Galinsky about habits. I've been totally intrigued about habits for a long time. And it's one thing to create habits around healthy eating or exercise, but I've often wondered how you create habits around living a meaningful life. How do you break that down into something that you can do every day? Lara Galinsky is an entrepreneur, leadership coach, and organizational consultant focusing on purpose, and I'm excited to bring her on the show to talk about how we can form great habits. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Ignited with Meaning, where we're exploring the terrain of a meaningful life, creating a roadmap for that, and generating more happiness along the way. I hope you're walking away with some ideas and inspiration for living a meaningful life yourself. If you did, please share this episode or another one with a friend by putting it on the next time you're driving to the beach. Uh, to the mountain, or any other long car ride. Hopefully it will spur some great conversations um, and, and make your trip all the more enjoyable. Until next time, be persistent, keep looking, and together we'll build the meaningful lives we want.